This episode is brought to you by DistroKid. Hey everybody, Chris Demakes here. It's hard to believe, but Valentine's Day is just around the corner. Do you want to get ahead of the curve and get your significant other a unique and memorable gift? Well, I'd love to write you a short custom song and play it in a personalized video greeting. You supply the details about the person you love and I'll do the rest. For example, if your name is Boris and your girlfriend's name is Gertrude and Gertrude really likes cats and playing the drums, I could write you something like this. Gertrude, you are the cat's meow And Boris tried so hard, but he can't tell you how He's felt about you since day one from the start You are the steady beat within his kick from heart Yeah, he will always be there Your love is tighter than a snare You are the steady beat within his kick from heart Yeah, Boris hopes you know that he never wants to be apart It doesn't just have to be for a love interest either. You can send a custom song Valentine greeting to a friend, to your parents, to your coworkers, or hell, even to yourself. Email me at kristamakes at gmail.com if you're interested. Video greeting reservations are limited, so time is of the essence. Hey everybody. Today's guest is Mr. Donnie V, best known as the guitarist and lead singer for the Chicago, Illinois rock band, Enough's Enough. We discussed their breakout hit single, New Thing, that was released in 1989, a song I clearly remember from being in high school and seeing on MTV. Donnie talked about how he wrote the song in his car in like five minutes, which as we know, some of the best songs are written quickly. We touched on the fact that although Donnie feels that some of the song's lyrics are juvenile and not all that great, I politely disagreed and think that not only do the lyrics work perfectly for the song, but they are light years beyond what most of their contemporaries were singing about back then. I mentioned how the song stands apart from all of Enough's Enough's 80s peers in terms of songwriting and overall performance. I always felt they were unfairly tagged as hair metal, and they had way more in common with a band like Cheap Trick than they did with Poison. And Donnie talked a healthy amount of smack about the age-old business known as the music industry. For all this and much more, stay tuned. You know, I had heard about you guys prior to the, I was going to say, I saw the premiere of New Thing, uh, the song we're going to talk about today. Uh, in 1989, um, I was uh, in my junior year of high school. I was an avid Headbangers Ball fan. Uh, yeah, I me loved, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, but I had heard of the band prior to this uh, on, it was a uh, low budget film called Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. You guys oh, had yeah. a song on that in 1986. The song was called Fingers on It. And uh, so, you know, you guys had your start uh, in, in the Chicago area. Um, I'm assuming you were playing places like the Thirsty Whale and the Cubby Bear. I don't know for sure, but, uh, um, you know, in doing my research, I, I, I definitely remember uh, hearing about bands playing the whale back in the day. So between that time of 86, you guys were writing songs, um, you know, working out, uh, you know, your, your, your style and, and everything as a band. Um, at what point did you guys get picked up by, by Atco? Um, well, I believe I met Chip in uh, either the end of 84 or, eight, or 85. 
we uh, went right to work, started writing and working on songs. I was pretty new at that. Um, you know, I'd written a couple, a few songs, you know, but nothing ever uh, well structured like you, you would hear uh, stuff that, you know, that I do nowadays. It's kind of self-indulgent. I was a, a newbie. So in any case, like I said, we you know started writing and, and he uh, kind of fast-tracked me to the power pop type thing because I had never done anything with uh, distorted guitars or any of that shit like that. And so we started off down that road and, and started writing um, and then all it just started clicking and I started writing my butt off. You know, like I said, he fast-tracked me and um, <clears throat> we rehearsed, like, we finally found some guys, you know, to play with. And uh, so we rehearsed our butts off, you know what I mean? And... Um, you know, writing new songs, re rehearsing them. And then we um, made a lower budget recordings um, that turned out to be a 1985 record later we released. Um, they had a local radio station thing that, that played off. They had like the countdown every every week for local radio, uh, the local bands around. And our first song on there was Catholic Girls. And it just went straight to number one and stuck there. Our next one was number one. Our next one was number one. So, um, and we had a manager, we acquired a manager that had a lot of money and stuff. So we were kind of spoiled in the studio and all this and that. And, uh, you know, Rolls Royce limos to our shows and stuff. Our first show that, uh, that was before the manager, our very first show was sold out, jam packed. You couldn't get in just because of that local radio thing. And, um, and is this how Atco got, got uh, wind of you guys? Is this, no, like this was like with fingers on it and Catholic girls and all that stuff was, was a couple of years prior to Atco. It now that I think about it, it, once we had the lineup of Derek and Vic, it was, uh, I'd say less than a year that we, you know, we were showcasing and shopping for deals. We were, we had, we had started, uh, we went from Chip and I four tracking and eight tracking like three songs a day, uh, twice a week to, um, to the, our manager owned Royal Recorders, our studio that we ended up uh, re recording our first record. And the issue we were having with labels was that our uh, the look once we got Derek and Vic, and it's just the, the look went bizarre. You know, I mean, there's nothing I had ever done. I had never uh, wore makeup or any of that stuff like that. And so they would come out. And I remember Chrysalis and another label come out to see us, and and. Uh, the look didn't make sense with uh, the music and the songs. So, that, you know, it was kind of, uh, you're sitting on the fence, you know, like uh, some of them are like pondering it. And, and one, I think Capital was interested. And then um, we did some shopping around a little bit more. And um, we were at a rehearsal in our rehearsal space, which we used to rehearse a place called Dress Rehearsal, where our rehearsals were basically, once Derek and Vic were in the band, was, you know, jam-packed with people and chicks and stuff like that. And, beer and all that stuff so we'd rehearse like a couple of songs and then sit around and, and hang out and so they a manager told us that uh somebody would be coming out from uh, atco and i'd never heard of atco yet and so uh we were rehearsing we went into a couple of songs there was some guy there in the, in the back corner with, with, a, with a beard and just kind of checking it out we went into a couple of songs and um, we were just dressed in street clothes, you know. And um, a couple songs in, Derek broke his guitar string, and uh, and we had to stop. It turned out to be Derek Shulman, the president of ACO. He just walked up and said, "You guys are great. I'll sign it. I'll take it." And then we went out to dinner and discussed some of the the deal and um, you know the money and everything. And and so that was, I believe, probably. 88 the end of 88 we started making the record okay and, uh, well that, so, and that and that's what i wanted to ask so you know did, did derek show me that he hear 
and I'm familiar with him. Did he hear new thing? Did, do you remember if you played it at that showcase he was at? Uh, had, had you demoed the song? Was it something that, that he was aware of uh, yet? I think that was on one of the demos. I think we probably sent him a demo of like five songs or something like that. And we never even played that at the at where he came out for the showcase. We never even ended up playing that when we got through uh, two songs. And I don't believe either of those might, might have even been on the record. Okay. But, well, so your, your timeline makes sense here. If it was late 88, you started recording the record because the uh, self-titled Enough's Enough album came out on ATCO on August 22nd, 1989. So um, again, the timeline makes sense. I tried to research. I thought for sure when I was going to go yeah, research. Yeah, literally that August, or October of 89, or November of 89, right? So we caught that we were known as an 80s band and we had <laughs> one month. <laughs> of the fucking eighties, you know what I mean, and and next thing we're still an eighties band and stuff. So yeah, like, well, well, you know, again, like when I went to research, the producer I thought for sure this is going to be Tom Werman, Richie Zito, one of those guys from the eighties, and I came across the name, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, uh, Ron uh, Fagerstein. 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 So Ron Fagerstein, I could not find anything on this fella. Um, the record. I still think it sounds great. I loved it when it came out. Um, where did he come into play? Was that someone, was that something it, that Atco brought to the table with you guys? No, he was, uh, like I said, um, he was a guy that, that was kind of uh, like a frustrated musician, diamond broker, cocaine addict. And um, he was, having, <laughs> you know, That's Rolls a- Royce limos living the life of Riley, you know, Ferraris and all this shit. And, a couple of bands he was like trying to pick up you know picking up a couple of bands for a roster he was getting into the management business because he owned the recording studio and uh chip you know we'd heard about him and stuff and, and we needed money badly we were hurting like chips electricity i had hooked that up to the upstairs the landlord's power and the phone and stuff you know with the uh, tapping in there and stuff and so chip drove up to lake geneva and to bring them our uh, demo tape, which was that 85 record and fingers on it, Catholic girls and stuff. And the guy loved it. He was, uh, like I said, a frustrated musician uh, and kind of buying bands. And, and we, once he had us, that was all he cared about anymore. That's all he needed. And um, but he, so it sounds like it sounds like he didn't have a track record. So like, no. how did how did Atco? How did they sign up with this? You would have thought at that point Atco had heard you guys. Certainly, Derek Shulman, he knew every top uh, producer from from the eighties at that point. Um, how how did Ron, beside you guys knowing him, how did he get the gig? He, he had a lot of money, so he was able to uh, you know wine and dine all of these labels and stuff. Uh, uh-huh. He had a, his his partner Bob Brigham actually had managed a band before, and so he kind of knew something about that. And Faderstein just went into the whole thing with uh, like it's my band, I produce, I'm I helped them write the songs, all this stuff, taking all this credit for everything, and uh, he ultimately resort res you know, resulted in getting the job to produce the, the record and everything. And, and this guy was a clown at this stuff. And we knew that, you know, but um, we needed the money and, and he, you know, there's a lot of perks to it. And so he would be whining and dining these labels, flying them out, you know, uh, putting them up and stuff. And, and so that was the way that he got in with that. What we had, we had new thing and a couple other songs off that record that, that he had heard. We didn't have fly on Michelle yet. And um, so we, they brought the demos and, and Chip and I had produced our own stuff. You know, he never produced anything. We went into the studio. We had the freedom to do whatever we wanted. We were pretty good at that by now. And um, he would take the credit for everything. When we, once we got the deal, you know, Shulman was like, okay, go make your record, you know, and just 
left everything alone because he liked the recordings and the demos and everything. So um, we went out to New York to get get new thing mixed so they could get get the ball rolling, set up the record and everything. And we went out there to New York to uh, had Bob Clearmount mixing these songs. And Shulman came into the studio to check up on how things are coming. And he freaked out. He was furious. He's like, what the fuck is this? You know, because Faderstein didn't let me play guitar on it. He just had Derek playing all the guitar because uh, he thought Derek was a good guitar player and I wasn't that good. So I wasn't allowed to play. Shulman heard that. And he's like, what the fuck is this? This is this isn't what I signed. This isn't this. Is, where's that sloppy guitar? Where's the feel? Where's all this and that? Why is there no motion in the vocals and stuff? And um, so then we, we went out to dinner and told him all about this guy told him the whole deal and he was like oh he goes i get it now he said you got to fire this guy we got to get rid of this guy and uh you got to fix this record so we had like i went in and played all the guitar on the on the whole record in one day and re-sang the whole record in uh the next day you know as, as where it took us two and a half three months to make the record i went and redid all my shit in two days you know so how did and he so, still get how did, how did he still get a production credit at that point um, because just with him owning the studio, he was there for the most of the making of the record. Okay. And, okay. um, and as we were, you know, we knew when we fired him, we were going to be going through a huge lawsuit. We knew that because, because we were, uh, neck high in, in debt to this guy by then. And but now his, Lake, Lake, Lake Geneva was in Wisconsin. I believe, uh, Skid yeah. Row did Slave to the Grind there. A lot of the eighties bands had, had recorded. Yeah, We were there. the reason they got, they went into that studio, you know, is because people heard our stuff. Sure. And, um, and that's how they got the gig and stuff. But he took all the credit for everything, and then it was clear what was actually going on. Well, I mean, I just just to let you know, uh, it doesn't take a rocket scientist. Um, I was pretty sure when I researched this guy that yeah, um, <laughs> he didn't have much to do with this. I figured you and Chips were the Chip were the brains behind the operation, so it, it's no it's no surprise that. Uh, uh, and, and in fact, I'm I'm surprised you guys got a record out of this, uh, considering uh, you know what he was up to in the studio. This guy, and it sounds like this was a vanity trip for him more so than it was a producer's yeah. gig. Um, so. Well, we were so good. So that's why we got a record out of him. And we, he would just let us in the studio and we did our thing. You know, he wouldn't even be there most of the time. We would just be tracking songs. We had probably right. probably uh, 20 songs then so, that we so, had tracked. So, so finally, when the label, when Derek, your A&R person, hears the record, of course, New Thing was the first single released in late 89. What was the what was the vibe at this point? Uh, did that did that song bubble to the top? Did did you and the guys in the band know that this song was uh, something special and this was this was going to possibly be a lead track? Chip and I pretty much believed that uh, that we were we had the goods to be one of the best, and um, we always believed that. We were pretty confident about it. We weren't we weren't uh, big fans of what was actually going on at the time musically out there. You know, just totally alien to it and. And um, I couldn't stand it. I couldn't stand the 80s stuff. I like Van Halen and maybe uh, Motley Crue and stuff like that. But um, we, we were really good at this. We figured New Thing was going to do pretty well because anybody that heard it immediately loved it. But anybody that heard any of our stuff, you know, my voice was, I was a pretty good singer. I mean, very separate, you know, apart from all of the other singers that were out there with all their you know, that crazy uh, cock rock shit. And, well, and, I, and, and, and let me just say that, you know, going back to being uh, 16 years old, junior in high school and hearing this, I, I knew then I was like, OK, um, it, it's an 80s thing and the image and everything. But I could see past uh, I, I knew there was substance there. The, the chordal arrangements were, were, were different. 
Um, obviously, you come from a Beatles-esque background, your biggest influence. I could I could hear that as a 16-year-old kid. Um, you know, so I always, I always thought that the package was, uh, wasn't wrapped in the right box for you guys, which is yeah, here nor right. there, which is here nor there. The song, the songs are testament. I always, uh, loved this song. Um, I love, uh, you know, uh, Derek, uh, Frigo's, uh, lead guitar playing in this song. I love the, the vocals and the harmonies. Um, and I actually, uh, picked up the, gu- the guitar the last two days and went through it and we'll get to that in a minute. Cause it's, uh, I know the first, as soon as I wrote that riff, that was the first thing that came up. My car, my car actually wrote the riff. And, and as soon as I heard that riff, I was like, this is going to be, I was just, I was at work with my grandfather I was still working with my grandfather building fences and stuff. And I had a beater car that wouldn't start. And it was like, and it would die. Right. And I heard a riff in that. And uh, so I wrote that riff in my head. And then, and I had it. By the time I got the chips, I had that whole damn song written. And I had never even plugged the guitar in yet, you know? (laughs) Well, and let me say about the lyrics, you know, you got to remember, especially the lyrics. Well, (laughs) You know, I <laughs> I had heard through the grapevine that you say these are the worst lyrics, and um, I'd like to respectfully disagree with you, um, and I'll tell you why. Um, first of all, coming from the scene that you guys were getting lumped in, and I listened to all that. Um, you know, I was a suburban kid in the middle of Florida. Uh, it's pre-internet, of course. Uh, you know, I got my music off of whatever was playing on the FM radio station and uh, whatever was coming on MTV, you know, Um when this song came out, what immediately, again, as a 16-year-old kid, struck me was the fact that this wasn't about, you know, let's go out and party and get laid. Yeah, that, right. That, the, lyrics, that, the lyrics were better than all those other it was bands better than all. It was better than all of it. And I want to get into the lyrics in a second. But the, you guys were set apart from that. And I was like, wow, this is like... You know, I don't even know. I don't know if I knew the term power pop then, but you guys, to me, had way more uh, akin to, to cheap trick than you did poison. You know? Yeah, well, we 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 uh, our influences, Chip and my influences, was totally different than any of the bands at that time. Those guys were were all uh, clinging to what was going on at the time, and, and like uh, Doug Morris over Atlantic was signing any band in California that that had a draw, you know. And so right. every cock rock band was getting deals. We that's what. Um, musically we just completely exploded and every, we were like the talk of the town and uh, favorites and stuff as far as the look wise went we had to kind of blend do it do like the joneses do but we like i was i don't know uh, 18 or 19 or something when we we signed the record deal and then i was like i said i up until the time i met chip i'd never even played in a professional band or anything i've done beatles stuff and shit like that and so my influences were of the Beatles, of Squeeze, of Motown. Uh, started with Led Zeppelin a little bit and stuff. A little bit cooler lyrics than "Bang Your Head," let's let's rock all night, you know this and that shit. Oh no, and, and I and 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 I knew that. And it's funny going through the years. You know, I come from a uh, my, my band is. Uh, in the punk rock scene, but a lot of guys I've met over the years know who you guys are and love love these songs. Uh, they're 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 great power pop uh, power pop songs. And in fact, uh, not a lot of guys were getting dropped uh, by major labels and getting repicked up in 1993 as you guys did by Clive Davis to sign to Arista. So Clive could could see through everything, you know. And that that's testament to to again. It's all about the songwriting, man. It, yeah, well, Clive had, Clive had a little different uh, agenda. 
then uh, at the same time after we got off of uh, off of that at Atlantic because like all the labels at that time when grunge came in and stuff were kind of disbanding and uh, grasping and straws and trying to reform and reformat and everything. And Echo was getting built on us. And like I said, I wrote Fly and Michelle right after we had the deal. And and um, these songs really, uh, like all the bands, everybody was like, you know, we, we, we were really cocky assholes too because we knew how much better we were than everybody else, you know. Even the ones that were huge, we knew that, that we were cooler. But um, the look, like I, I was very inexperienced, and I just thought that's what I'm supposed to do. I guess I'm supposed to look like this. Instead. And and guess what? If I would have gotten a record deal at your age, and I I, I would and anybody that says they wouldn't have done it, most of them are full of shit. I yeah, I didn't. <laughs> I wasn't feeling the style. I wasn't feeling the production style of of what we were doing. I didn't believe in that, and I didn't. It was totally alien to me. And so, and and my songwriting suffered because of it. And and I, you know, not to take anything away from Derek, but. That totally, we made a big left turn there when he came into the band, and uh, that whole sound and, and style and stuff and the look and all that. And Chip really didn't have much experience with that either. So he was, we were both just grabbing do like the Joneses because Derek and Vic already had that look, and that was their. They were from right. doing the California thing and stuff. So we just did like everybody else, which you know, it, my who at that age that gets a deal like that and everything, a huge deal, walks just says, you know what, I'm. I'm not feeling this and uh, I'm going to walk away and I'm going to, you know, do things how my gut instinct. Uh, but so uh, I didn't do that, obviously. And um, and and then once the record came out, we went straight to number one on MTV and all of that with that look and stuff, which did catch the appeal on MTV. Oh, for you know? sure. And I, and I, I want to get into that in a moment, but first let's get into that. Let's, let's break down some lyrics here because again, you, I know you, you say that, uh, or, or, or <laughs> you're not too fond break of down the lyrics. lyrics. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That's we're on a songwriting podcast and we're going to do new thing. We're going to get into the lyrics right now. So it's not about anything. That's the thing that, what, that, you know, it wasn't about, it's just a bunch of words to, to go with syllables and vowels. Cause I hear the syllables and vowels immediately when I write the songs. Well, I, just, I, uh, I, I mean, and I really like it to, you know, thir- 31 years removed. And, uh, I think they're cool lyrics, man. The first, uh, the first verse is information came about her. Suddenly I live without her. Turn my stereo up louder. I don't want to hear about her. Took myself a small vacation, kind of an investigation, checking out a new sensation, finding much invigoration hand is on the buzzer and I'm walking through the door. And then of course hits the chorus, which is get high on a new thing. So I don't know, you know, I could take away that this is a, uh, you know, you say the lyrics don't really mean anything. Was this just something you made up or was this something you were going through relationship wise? It was, no, it wasn't, it wasn't anything. It was just all made up as fitting the vowels and syllables. And, and like, <laughs> cool. had I wrote, had I wrote it today now that I'm uh, or even, even at the strength time, or even had it been inspired by anything except that riff, would, I would have wrote it a lot differently, the lyrics and stuff. But, you know, it's peppered with cool lines. You know, right. I don't want to hear about her hands on the buzzer, all that stuff. That's cool. But information came about her. That's so ridiculous. And uh, <laughs> um, took a small vacation, <laughs> shit like that. It's like, but it, 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 it worked with the, because I'd hear the, and then just fitting in the quickest words that I could find for that because like I said, I was brand new at this. And especially this power pop style. And um, so 
I still hear them like this, but now I spend more time and uh, I get a little more experience. And so with the lyrics, uh, you know, I say I'm, I'm embarrassed about them, but that's just because of what I've become lyrically. Um, I guess they, you know, they were, like I said, you, they were cooler than what was out there. But uh, if I listen to them nowadays, you know, and I have to sing it, I've had to sing it a million times. Well, like, yeah, but when you do was... it acoustically. It really, the lyrics pop out at me like, oh, cringing. Well, but yeah, but again, um, just taking it for face value and looking at it and the fact that you're just like, this was just basically a bunch of words uh, thrown together. It's a pretty cool little uh, pop masterpiece you came up with um, because uh, a lot of times, again, you know, if you were to write this today, um, and it take, and it's, that's t- not taking anything away from where you're at as a songwriter. Cause obviously you've grown and gotten better. I've, I've, I've followed your career and I've heard your stuff, but, uh, there was some lightning in the bottle stuff going on here. I don't know if you could recapture, uh, you know, you could put a, di- a, a maybe a better line than information came about her, but, uh, I don't know if it would, would have the charm that this has. Yeah. Well, like, um, I've said before, I don't know if you, you know, I've done it in other interviews and I've always said that. I let the song tell me what it wants to be. And when I hear these ideas, they, you know, it's like they're given to me from somewhere. And the vowels and syllables are there already. And, and basically the, the chorus line or something to usually be already, I'll hear that already. And, and uh-huh. you know, there's, I don't even have to, it's like I'm not even writing it. And uh, it's my job just to fill in the blanks, you know, and make, fill in the vowels and syllables and try to find some way to have it have meaning or something. And, um, and still to this day, it's like that. It's just, as I said, I'm more experienced at it. But so the vowels and syllables, that's what you're hearing basically is the vowels and the syllables and my and the sound in my voice is well, would, worked would, with for that, you know? Would you say, and my producer uh, Chris and I talk about this a lot, a lot of times, um, you know, we call them placeholders. You'll write a song, you have a melody, and you'll be humming like, I don't know where I'm going. And then next thing you know, like, you can't beat that lyric. <laughs> that th- that placeholder lyric that you wrote in the car on the way back home from the gas station is what ends up being on the record. And w- were, were, were some of this or was a lot of this song just kind of nonsense placeholders that became the song? Do you remember? Looking to elevate your music career? DistroKid is a digital music distribution service that enables musicians to distribute their music to online stores and streaming platforms such as Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, Amazon, Tidal, and many more. DistroKid collects earnings and payments, sending them to you, the artist. With DistroKid, artists unlock a world of possibilities. From easily paying collaborators with splits, to securing your music with DistroLock, DistroKid covers all bases. Plus, you can promote your releases with HyperFollow and create eye-catching visuals with a Spotify Canvas generator, all for free. But that's not all. Introducing the DistroKid app, now available on iOS and Android. Artists can manage their releases, view streaming stats, and withdraw earnings, all from the palm of their hand. And for those looking to perfect their sound, check out Mixia. With its simple interface and customizable mastering options, artists can make their music sound polished and professional within minutes. And don't forget about Instant Share, DistroKid's newest feature. Share large files securely with collaborators, producers, and more, ensuring your music streams at the highest quality. Ready to take your music to the next level? Download the DistroKid app and explore their suite of tools today. Plus, listeners can enjoy 30% off their first year by visiting distrokid.com VIP slash demakes. That's distrokid.com VIP slash demakes. 
Pretty much so. Um, they were placeholders. Some of the lines were, were cool and some of the lines, you know, but there was for lack of better lines. And also because uh, I'd have Chip there. Oh, that's great. That's great. It was like that because he can't write lyrics, you know, and, and so he's thinking <laughs> that's great. And he's hearing this vowels and syllables, too. So it was working. And, and we're, we're, you know, as soon as we finish one song, bam, we're on to another one. I believe when we, when we demoed new thing, we demoed three songs that day. And um, so we're moving on to the next one. If he, he says the lyrics are good enough, and he was like my hero at that time, and uh, I had something to sing, and the vowels and syllables lined up. So, you know, never really thought about it again lyrically until, you know, after strength and stuff when I started actually writing decent lyrics. And well, and I, I, I want to tell you too, I can totally relate where you're coming from. I have people that uh, that love my band's first record, and basically it was just a glorified demo that we recorded, and some label wanted to release it. And uh, I, I cringe when I hear it now. I always give the example. It's like, uh, you know, when your your mom has friends over for Thanksgiving and family, and they're like, "Look at the picture Chris drew when he was five years old in the fridge." You're like, "Oh, mom," you know. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, so I I get what you're saying, but I'm telling you as a fan and someone that. Uh, you know, I've been been around the, the business for, uh, you know, going on 30 years myself. Uh, I don't know. I, I really like these lyrics. And I just want to go into the second verse. Um, uh, I love this second verse. Everybody wants to find it. Just they're all so narrow minded. See a hill. They've got to climb it. Maybe pots of gold behind it. Worry, worry is your answer. I love this line. Uh, if you like your wrinkles faster. <laughs> <laughs> Nursing old things makes them last the way we did it in the past. Uh, man, you know, no one was, for lack of a better word, hair metal, cock rock, whatever you want to call it, um, was writing lyrics like this in 1989. And, and, and that, that's what stuck, stuck out to me and, and still does uh, about this particular song. <laughs> that's crazy. I mean, uh, that and Kiss the Clown are like, the, I, and most of the rest of the record, the lyrics were pretty good. You know, just uh, that one, like it was a very, it was written, you know, very early in our uh, writing together you know but the, like i said it was the lyrics were working we were used to, i was used to them very quickly you know it's like now i got demoitis on them other people had heard it and so it's like we're going with that you know well and, uh, and there's there's three pre-choruses in the song and i want to touch on those real quick so the first pre-chorus uh the, the lyric is hand is on the buzzer and i'm walking through the door the second pre-chorus is everybody telling you you ain't got no respect and then the third pre-chorus, and I want to know about this line because this line sticks out to me in the song. I'm like, wait a second. Is this like, and, and I, at the time as a kid, I thought it was going to be an anti-suicide song. It said, uh, the third pre-chorus is suicide. Don't make it cause you're lonely in the end. Do you remember that lyric writing that? Yeah. But it, like, it, it didn't mean anything at the time. Like, <laughs> um, uh, I think uh, everybody telling you you ain't got no respect was the one line that meant something to me in it because that one hit home because that's basically, you know, how it was. But, um, like, I guess I was a little more intelligent than a lot of those lyric writers. And so I got lucky with uh, with that, like, somebody like yourself and other people uh, hearing cool things and cool messages out of that, which I'm not saying that the message was, was goofy. I'm just saying, like, I could have chosen some better lines than a few of those. It, all it takes is those is a couple of those lines in that song to make me cringe and the rest of it. I, you know, well, I don't even, I don't even think about the rest of it. I guess the rest of them are okay. 
how I've gotten over that is is when I look at the adoration on the fans' faces when they're telling me about that record that I equate to the picture on my mom's fridge. Um, <laughs> I just I look at the the love in their eyes for what I did and what I created, and it kind of takes that sting out of you know I was so young and I do it different now because it's such a catch twenty two. You know, it's like there is something so primal about those early songs that you write you're not really thinking about them yet and uh it's funny how the fans uh, uh latch onto that and they they form their memories around around that song and uh i don't know again i uh, uh not tooting your horn i just i've always loved these lyrics uh the song is a little little pop masterpiece the chord arrangement i want to talk about a little bit um i always try to pick up a guitar um, and, and analyze the songs that, uh, I'm going to be talking about on the show. And, uh, you know, the song starts in B major, but it's just, there's a lot of these little, and I, I keep referencing the Beatles cause uh, that's what I hear in here. There are very quick moves where it's almost like a quarter beat where it's like on this, you know, chord, boom. Then it goes, you know, it's like, like a, an E minor back to an A and a uh, lot of movement in this song. It's not just your, your, your straight, uh, you know, um, you know, G A A D arrangement. Um, talk a little bit about the song and was the song musically written before the lyrics? Yeah, absolutely. Um, like I said, the car wrote the riff and then everything right, okay. just started, started flowing. Um, uh, as far as in, um, uh, like I said, it's like my influence and stuff. I don't think anybody else in the, in the business was using minor chords, you know? And so, it was, it just, that's just naturally what I was feeling and hearing the, you know, those kind of chords with my influences and stuff. That was natural to me. That's was the, ob- I go with the obvious. That's what it, it, you know, the song told me it wanted to be. And I've never written any of those, uh, those other kind of tunes, you know, I've always, uh-huh. that was always my influence, but the chorus, that was the thing that Chip had, had to do with the song. And, um, is I had the chorus as Get high, staying on the beat, uh, and then A and on a new thing. And he, you know, it was three chord. And Chip always, and he still does this to, to this day, is put the descending bass line and everything, you know. Do, 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 do. And uh, so that was his step. contribution. So that that's where you're hearing the quarter note changes. Right. Is that code. But if you listen uh, to anything that, chip anything to do with you'll hear those <laughs> you know right the, on. The, the descending baseline so so take take uh the listeners back now um the, the you're in the studio uh the 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 song uh, uh you're, you're listening to the to the mix down you got the record the the r guy jumps on it and they and you say they say we're making a video now for new thing and uh you guys go do the video and next thing it's on mtv what was that like? Because it, it had blown up. It was getting played not just on Headbangers Ball, but it was now getting played on rotation during during the daytime. What was but that? We didn't, a- know, we didn't know how fast all that would happen because the song, I do believe the song was, was, was uh, before the record was, no, I guess the record was finished by the time that the song, but we made the video, we showed it, we had no no control or anything to do with that making that video that they, they hired Ralph Zeman and Benji Howell. And, uh, it was very, they just, we walked in to see that set. We were like, Holy cow, you know, the big sound stage and all yeah. the green screen and all that stuff like that. And then, and then they had hired Paul Starr who did boy George and all those bands like that to do the makeup, did our makeup. And, and we had a pretty good looking band without makeup. You know, I'd have to say out of all those, uh, 
glam rock bands. I think we were the coolest looking, you know, without makeup. And um, so then we did the video and uh, I don't, I hadn't, the first time I saw it was uh, Derek and I were still, still uh, awake. You know, we were, we were partying and uh, still in our, in our new thing clothes and uh, <laughs> with beards and stuff and in, 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 in our condo out in, uh, out of the Sherwood Oaks in California. And we just happened to glance over at the TV and it's like, Hey, look at that. It was us. It was like, I think it was a matter of, uh, well, I guess we, we stayed up one time for a month. So I guess that was probably about two weeks. <laughs> two, I'm ah, serious. This is, this is, I'm, I'm honest. Um, so I think it was like two weeks. And that was the first time we had ever seen the video was right there on, uh, on MTV. And, um, and it was, you know, next thing you know, we saw it well, and five, I, five times in the next two hours. And the listeners have to have to know, uh, and for those who, who may, might be too young and don't remember, um, MTV was, would make or break your band back then. Yeah. Uh, you know, this song, I don't know what it did on other charts, but uh, on the Billboard 100, the song made it up to number 67, which is which is great, respectable, but it's not, uh, you know, in, in the uh, uh, 20 and below or, ten, you know, 10, 10 below uh, slot. So, you know, it wasn't indicative. You didn't have to be burning up the radio charts. If you were on MTV, that was really all that mattered for not just a fan base uh, to, to sell records, but, uh, you know, for concert attendance. Well, and, it was uh, so different than what was then the the formats for all the radio stations. You had jockeys, but that's when that's in the time when program directors and their you know program playlists started becoming the norm for the, for the label or the stations. And like I said, the look and the sound didn't didn't jive. And uh, basically, you know, it started out doing well on the radio until they'd see the band. And it, you know, and uh, also it it not sounding. You know how the machine works. Oh, yeah. That, uh, when something's successful, they want more of that. They're just going to, you know, get, throw that at you until that burns out and then give you the next thing. And like I said, uh, 89, it was the end of 89. Next came the 90s, which everything was changing. So we were on the last seat on the last bus instead of the first seat on the next bus out, which would have been the smart move. And so that's with radio and things that was all changing. That was becoming. Um, it was a. It was a, a business at that point. No longer were the DJs in charge of playing what they liked and stuff like that. And and uh, like I said, it was the the music was changing and stuff like that. So all of a sudden, you're uh, there's ten songs that most stations will play all day. Same ten songs over and over. And we were lucky to get in yeah. there at any spot. And you know we were brand new and we sounded so different. So people had to start to warm up to us. You know, initially, you know, some places though it was it was real strong. And then but you know, billboard and all that stuff like that, when you're competing with, you know, uh, Aerosmith and all that stuff that was out, you know, there just wasn't a slot for us on, on a lot of the major, major, major stations, except they'd play us a couple of times a day as opposed to ten times in the in two hours. Like they'd play some stuff. Right. And so uh and then, and really quickly after Fly, then Fly Michelle came out and uh, was doing, and that took it from the, that 67, started going out and climbing. And, um, and then something happened with the labels. And the next thing we were on tour and we're doing great and everything is going good. And we're all the radios, we're doing, we meet all the radios, stations and stuff. And uh, all of a sudden, uh, something that the rug was getting pulled out from underneath the label and, and the push. And I'll tell you something, the, Doug Morris was the guy, the president of Atlantic, 
uh, Amadaria. Derek Shulman was new to that label. He, had, he was discovered Bon Jovi over at Columbia. So he was a really cocky, arrogant son of a bitch, you know, and so they, he wasn't, they weren't big fans of his and, and, but they were, they were grooming Shulman to take over uh, presidency of Atlantic. And so we didn't know it yet. And we, after flying, Michelle is going up, we're getting ready to put out, um, I can never be without you as the summer ballad. We're going to do a video for that and everything. It was probably, we figured that one's probably, probably going to shoot up there. And, um, but all of a sudden we just got, we got on the bus after a show one night and they said, Hey, we're going home. Like, what do you mean we're going home? He goes, yeah, the record's dead. So it's not dead. It's like, we're still climbing. We're just our second video out. We're getting ready to put the next one. He goes, no, something's happening at the label. And so we were, we had such a, a big deal. You know, uh, I think it was an eight record deal for uh, like 12 something million dollars. And so um, at that point, it was time to make another record. Shulman didn't necessarily know what was going on yet. We didn't know what was going on yet. So we went in to make strength. And then we're getting to be pretty seasoned vets at the songwriting and stuff. And I, and I started taking over. I outgrew all of that and started really getting a handle on what I was doing. And um, in came all the strings and all this cool shit. And we had a producer stuff. But after that record, we went out on tour. We were doing uh, sheds and arenas opening up for you know, shit like Nelson and stuff like that, you know, it's playing the 17 year old kids and things like that. So, you know, it was, it was alien to a lot of the radio stations and the main listeners and had it, had they continued to push it and had it continued like the, our initial push, we probably would have been the biggest band in the world. But well, you know, it was just, everything was, was sales driven. It wasn't like, you know, let, let's cultivate our career. We have a great thing. We're playing sold out shows. And, uh, the, the business was just, it was different back then. And, uh, I always thought it was weird. And I've met a number of bands who went through, uh, the, the same instances that you, you're just speaking of. And it's, uh, it's well, kind of sad. It, it went you know. from one thing when the music business initially, when the record companies were, were, were manufactured and started, they were, they were all owned by, um, the major movie, uh, labels sony universal mca all that stuff were major movie and so the the record companies were uh designed as a write-off they were designed to lose money as a write-off so where they could bury in in, in tax write-offs and stuff for the money and then it with djs started really uh really making it catch on in, in the 70s and stuff it was a, it was an incredible i'm sure incredible time to yeah you know but it was music then it was, you know, the DJs and it was music and stuff. And the DJ could could start playing what he liked and he thought was good, as opposed to by the time we came out, there's a there's a, a you know, a, a list. And it's, you know, it's here's what you're playing. The DJs were basically could have been anybody. Yeah. You know what I mean, and um, and so what? that's that's what was it, it. It turned into business music and then business. One more thing I want to touch on, you know, you guys had, had uh, from the time you met Chip, you, you were paying your dues, you were, you were playing the clubs, uh, doing your thing, had a, a, a mention, a song on the, on a small film that was getting you some attention, of course, getting signed by Atco. What was that like when new thing was blowing up? And do you remember the, the first show you played and, and the audience reaction singing that song back to you? What did that feel like after paying your dues? From from my childhood and my whole life up until that point, I was a pretty insecure, uh, alienated kid from everybody else. I, I didn't have that supportive uh, family like you were talking about with your mother and your parents. Mm-hmm. I had actually actually the opposite. But just the transformation from Donnie Vandeveld to Donnie V 
I remember at that time, all this, I'm just getting in enough enough and playing with Chip. I remember it was a dramatic change, and all of a sudden, I felt like somebody as opposed to feeling like a you know big nobody my whole life. You know, from there, we just it's just one thing after another. It was like big big leaps. It was big. I remember Chip and I hearing Catholic Girls on the radio for the first time. Number one, and we're like, oh man, he didn't even have the name Chips enough yet. I <laughs> I thought of that. He was at these all their names he had were so ridiculous, and I go, what you know, there was Winger. There was a warrant. There was Michael. I just go, why don't you just be chips enough? And he sat and I just heard him whispering that to himself. I'm driving. And he's, uh, you know, it was after rehearsal. We've just had a big fight, too. We were fighting about his name. We were fighting about this and starting to get, uh, have some differences in opinion about things. But then all of a sudden on the radio comes uh, comes Catholic girls and we we're looking at each other. And I went to drop him off. He looks at me and goes, I'm chips enough, you know. But, uh, but it was just one thing after another was getting bigger, 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 and bigger. And um, and the, the partying, uh, the issues that I had had really were escalating, set, set apart from chip and um, business and things like that. Because everywhere I went was a huge party for me. And all of a sudden, I'm the new kid on the block, this new singer, this different guy, this writer, you know, that's, uh, you know, I mean, I, I got real full of myself real fast. You know, and well, uh, that was that was indicative of the time period, too. Was, yeah. So uh, a lot it, of that was encouraged. A lot of, the, a lot of that time was kind of, I started taking for granted and uh, being caught up in the party, which started taking over more than um, the the integrity of the music and stuff I was writing. Really, the party was taking over. And um, so there's a lot of it. I can remember it all clearly, but I don't remember it all registering with me. There's, there, there's a saying, if you don't remember, that means you were there. Well, I was, I was taking it for granted, you know, and if you read some of those early interviews, I was an asshole. I've talked shit about bands and stuff like that, which later when I started meeting these bands that I didn't respect their music or whatever, I became, started becoming friends with them. And I started seeing that they're out there working just like us, just as hard. They, you know, so, uh, you know, I just started having more empathy and more, uh, consideration for other people but during that whole time i got pretty uh pretty confident and, and pretty t- much taking things for granted and and just envision we never seen the rug getting pulled out there we had had envisioned that and, and like the makeup we had we shed that by strength you know we got rid of that and uh, it was too late at that point but it was just you know strength we knew this record is amazing and people still talk about that as a as a milestone in um you know, mixing that kind of production with rock and roll music sure. and stuff like that. And, well, and so it was one thing after another. And, and and after we had recorded Strength, I already had written a lot of stuff for animals, you know. So I knew that I was getting better and better and better, which to this day, I believe that is still the case, you know. Yeah, keep, well, that's that I think as songwriters that, that we're, I'm, I'm always trying to write the next best song from what I did did previous, you know, so, um, we're gonna, we're gonna wrap things up here. Um, Donnie, I, I just want to, I want to thank you for taking the time out uh, to speak to me uh, today. I, I've, again, I've always, always loved this song, always loved uh, your music. Um, would anything you'd like to leave our listeners with anything you'd like to plug your solo stuff, anything else you have going on? Uh, please, please let us know about it. Well, let me tell you right off the bat. First of all, the reason my, my answers here are a little long winded and and um, trying to think is because at your interview, this has been set apart from a, most of the interviews that I've been doing. The questions that you're asking are more along the lines of things that I think that I'd like to be answering questions. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, thank you. And I'm not used to that. 
And so I had to think hard, but um, I got a new single coming out next month. As long as long we're making a shooting of a, a really cool video for it. The song's called Party Time, and, it, and it's a song that I would say it's my rock and roll part. You know, I want to rock and roll all night. The poison, nothing but a good time. It's like my version of one of those that I've been trying to write my whole career. So that's when I decided I got to have a video for this. So we're making that's all coming together really well and we're making a video. And Chip and I just did a deal with Cleopatra Records and got our whole catalog now under one on one label. Yeah, uh, Party Time is coming out. Um, I, I'm not making a full record because financially it doesn't really make sense. And, um, you know, you still get the, the same juice with one song. And also, I, I'm not giving up on beautiful things. It's just too great a record, and and um, not enough people have heard it. And so I keep, I'm making, putting out singles in support of that record. There you go. Well, yeah, if you haven't checked out uh, Donnie's solo record, Beautiful Things, it's awesome. Uh, great little uh, pop, pop record. I, I, I love it. And uh, um, uh, one last thing, can you tell our listeners where to find you uh, online? Uh, DonnieB.com, Facebook, Twitter, uh, uh, anywhere that you can find anybody else uh, except in uh, a mansion. <laughs> You know, but, uh, <laughs> or, the, or the radio, you know, anywhere else, though, that you can find anything else. Uh, I have guys that take care of all that for me. How could we have a better ending to the show than that? Thank you, Donnie. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thank you guys very much. It's been a pleasure. And thanks for. Hello, everybody. I'm Bruce. And I'm Nolan. And this is the Corner of Gray Street Podcast. As longtime Dave Matthews Band fans, we set out to create a podcast to dive deep into the past, present, and future of DMB. Not only do we recap and review shows within an ongoing tour, but we revisit past shows from throughout the band's history, conduct interviews with a wide variety of guests with ties to DMB, and create unique and exclusive content like our Concerts on the Corner series. Whether you're a fan of the band or just a fan of great music, we think you'll find something you'll enjoy. We can't wait to see you on The Corner of Gray Street. Thinking of me. As we near the end of the show, here's a band you might not know. Welcome to this week's Band You Might Not Know. If you'd like your band to be considered for Krista Makes a Podcast, all you have to do is submit your song and bio to bandyoumightnotknow at gmail.com. This week's featured band is The Callouts, a pop-punk-influenced female-fronted rock band from Providence, Rhode Island. They describe themselves as a power trio with one too many members, and when Gwen Stefani had a one-night stand with Piebald. <laughs> That's their description of themselves, not mine. Here's a snippet of their song, Cannonball. Hey everybody, I'm Chris Fafalius and I'm the producer of Krista Makes a Podcast and the host of the One Hit Thunder Podcast. And I'm Matt Kelly, host of Horror Movie Night and the producer slash the head of content for the Geekscape Podcasting Network. Between the two of us, we have, believe it or not, 25 years of podcasting experience and we want to help you start your own podcast. 
We know podcasting and we want to share that knowledge with you. So whether you're new to podcasting or you want some feedback on your currently active podcast, we want to help. Or perhaps you're just overwhelmed with all of the editing work. Well, we can help you with that also. You can contact us at info at weknowpodcasting.com for more information. We're excited to help your podcasting dreams become a reality. The Wrap with Chris and Chris. That was really interesting, man. I had heard of Enough's Enough. And then in preparation for this episode, I checked out New Thing and a few other songs. I think New Thing's really cool. And I guess what I was expecting was 80s hair metal. And what I heard was, just like you guys talked about in the episode, power pop, which... I thought was really cool and not what I expected at all. Yeah, you know, I, I touched on in the episode. Those guys got kind of, you know, fairly or unfairly pegged. I don't know. I, I probably would have done the same thing if I was uh, presented with the choice back then. Here, put on these clothes, kid, and you're going to be on MTV. Who knows Who knows what you would have done as a, as a 21-year-old kid? Um, they uh, just write these, these little power pop gems that are really great songs. And Donnie was, uh, it, it was interesting. He, much like us, we, we look at our early stuff and we're, we're kind of embarrassed, even though like that, that's like his biggest hit. He uh, looks at it as kind of like, ah, it's a song I wrote back when I was 21. <laughs> and as far as where they were, and you're talking about he was a 21 year old kid. Yeah. Think about when we were 21 and like, we may have fallen victim to, whatever the look was at that time or anything. And luckily we came from punk rock and like the look has always just kind of been what your look is in everyday life. Like I wear jeans and a t-shirt on stage. Wake up in a pair of shorts. That's what I wear. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Wake up, wake up in a pair of shorts and a baseball cap. And that's what you take to the stage. Right. Uh, So, you know, maybe there's little things like I'm not going to wear socks up to my knees uh, these days, but in general, uh, I, I don't look too much different than I did back then. Where whereas if we if this was 1987, I don't know. Maybe we would be wearing spandex, and I, I like to think that I wouldn't be wearing spandex. But I I, I don't want to say that, especially if I had some great songs and someone from a record label came along and was influencing me, uh, saying I was gonna be very successful with music if I do this and that. So. Who's to say, really, you know? Yeah, and you know, and what I took away from the episode really was just the fact that it's amazing that they got a record out of this. They had this guy, uh, Fagerstein, this no-name. You can't even find him. You Google his name. He hasn't produced anything else that he got a production credit on the record, which is testament to, to Donnie and, uh, you know, Enough's Enough uh, bass player Chips Enough, their their talent uh, as engineers and, and uh, producers. They, they really produced that record. I could see through that now. Uh, but just the fact that they got a record out of it, uh, with a guy that was just all about the party and the flashy cars, and which, again, was just so indicative uh, of the 80s and that whole time period. Hey, man, maybe we should hit up this Fagerstein guy and see if he'll check out ChristaMakesADifference.com this month. <laughs> uh, maybe maybe we should, and maybe maybe Fagerstein can, uh, can give to this month's fundraiser. What do you think, Chris? Yeah, I think so. I mean, if he has all that money for drugs and partying in, <laughs> in the late 80s, I don't see why he couldn't give some money to a good cause in 2021. Well, uh, this month's fundraiser for Krista Makes a Podcast is the Jason R. Flood Memorial. It's a newly established nonprofit uh, fundraiser founded after the suicide death of Jason Flood. Uh, their goal is to raise awareness of suicide prevention, uh, to feel comfortable to speak up and reach out when warning signs are recognized. So if you could, please go to KristaMakesADifference.com. 
anything you can spare, a dollar to five uh, to help out this wonderful organization. Uh, it helps a lot of people. Uh, we'd, we'd really appreciate that. Uh, I know you heard at the top of the show that I am doing a Valentine's Day uh, custom video greetings. So please get at me at KristaMakes at gmail.com. I'd like to give you or that special someone a Valentine custom video greeting, which is uh, it's a great last minute gift. I know a lot of you out there uh, scramble around trying to figure out what you're going to give uh, that special someone. So hit me up. I'm also still doing the custom songs and jingles for you, your friend, anyone for a business. Hit me up at KristaMakes at gmail.com for that as well. And if you haven't already, please join the Krista Makes a podcast Facebook group. It's free to join. Lots of fun. We, uh, we hope to see you there. I like how you always specify that it's free to join the Facebook group. Well, you know, <laughs> yeah. everything costs money, Chris. Yeah. We just got to talk to, done talk about the fundraiser, you know. I want to start charging to join the Facebook group. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> hey, also, I harp on this all the time, but I feel like I haven't talked about it much on the actual podcast. But if you listen to this podcast, which just like Chris said, is free to listen to. <laughs> I was going to uh, say, it's free. <laughs> it's free of charge to listen to this podcast. But what we would seriously really appreciate is if you would go on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review, because if you leave a review, that helps us come up higher in the searches for music podcasts and things like that. And then more people will find out about the podcast, which will equate to us maybe landing those bigger guests. Maybe we can finally get Bruce or Madonna or somebody like that <laughs> if we have enough ratings on Apple Podcasts. So if you can go leave us a five-star review, we'd appreciate that. That's right. Weird Al Yankovic said if we have over 500 five-star reviews, he may, he just may come on Krista Makes a Podcast. He so. really cares about those reviews. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks again for everybody for making this a great week, and we'll see you next week. Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you'd cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effie Perspective don't have to wonder, because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. Hey, this is Steve Choi, host of the Musicians Guild Podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Within the four walls of the Musicians Guild, we'll be discussing the habits, idiosyncrasies, experiences, and general psychology of my friends and peers all involved with music in various capacities. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com.